Here we are. It's a Thursday, and it's been a really long week. It's going to be a longer week for me. I have to watch another stupid Republican debate on Saturday night, but that's why they pay me the better-than-mediocre dollars. So much to talk about, plus a very special episode. A very spe- Lindsay's going to love this one. A very special episode of Things That I Hate and Letters from the Vaunted Ben Shapiro Show mailbag. I am Ben Shapiro, and this is The Ben Shapiro Show. The tend to demonize people who don't care about your feelings. Yes, indeed you do. Well, yesterday we discussed Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump at length. And today we're going to discuss the person who's most likely to win the Democratic nomination. This, of course, would be Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton lost badly in New Hampshire. And now she's sort of flailing about. She's looking for endorsements from the black community. No doubt she has calls into President Obama at the White House begging him to endorse her for President of the United States. Because the minute Obama does that, the black community is enshrined in her in her in her silo of votes. Well, Hillary Clinton gave her victory speech yesterday, and I thought it was actually a pretty telling victory speech because you have to you have to understand American politics has always been broken down racially and and in terms of class. But there there was a point in American life where it seemed like maybe for a moment we had gotten beyond it. It was the Reagan era, during the Reagan and even the Clinton era to a certain extent. It seemed like we'd moved beyond some of the old kind of chains that were holding us back, the chains of racial division, the chains of class division. Instead, it turned into, okay, what, what does good economic policy look like? What, is, what, is good, what does good social policy look like? And that's how you ended up with compromises like welfare reform, and that's why you ended up with a Republican victory in 1994, and that's why you ended up with 20 years of uninterrupted growth. It's because of that. We put aside the, the racial divisions and the class divisions, And then George W. Bush was not competent, and then he was followed by a highly competent, highly divisive politician who we brought into office hoping that he would unify us along lines of race and instead decided to polarize us along lines of class and race. If you remember all the way back to 2008, all the way back to 2008, this is how far the paradigm has shifted. All the way back in 2008, you remember in the very last days of the campaign, there was a guy named Joe the Plumber, and Barack Obama walked up to Joe the Plumber in Ohio, his name is Joe Wurzelbacher, and he, he walked up to him, and he started talking to him, and, and Joe Wurzelbacher said to him, you know, I, I don't understand why you want to take, I, I run a business, why do you want to take my money and give it to somebody else? How is that okay? And Obama said, well, if you just take, take some of the wealth, and you just spread it around, everybody will be a little better off. Just spread around the wealth. Just spread it around. Just spread it. And everybody, and, and, and everybody thought, well, that's not a great quote. And John McCain sees that, he said, my friends, he's a socialist. And Barack Obama said, how dare you call me a socialist? I'm not a socialist. You know, that's not nice. How dare you? That's not good. Well, now you've got Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, both of whom are basically open socialists. You remember back in 2008, Barack Obama, when Jeremiah Wright, the news of Jeremiah Wright came forward, that Barack Obama had attended a church for 20 years and been married by a man who said, God damn America, and who said, America KKKA, right? I mean, that's, that's what he said. And the media went into full defense mode for Obama. And Obama then did a full speech talking about how we needed to get past our bad racial history. And there were still hallmarks of it that we had to erase. And we were going to move forward into the future arm in arm, just like MLK's vision. And now, eight years later, we've got Beyonce at the Super Bowl marching arm in arm with her black backup dancers wearing Black Panther outfits. The only reason the race matters is because there were no white backup dancers or Latino black backup dancers. It was all Black Panther outfits doing a Malcolm X formation. And that's the new America. So we've been divided more than we have been in my lifetime along lines of, of race. 
And then when it came to class, same sort of deal. President Obama has decided that he's going to promote the idea that income inequality is the end of the world. As we've discussed many times on the program, income inequality means nothing. It sort of depends on what the low income is. No one worries about the difference between my income and Bill Gates's income because I'm doing pretty well for myself. People are worried about the difference between my income and the school teacher's income. What they really should be worried about is that the school teacher isn't making enough money, right? That would make more sense than to worry about what, I, what I'm not taking my money from the school teacher. In fact, I'm paying the school teacher several times over, and my kid isn't even in school. So Barack Obama has divided us along lines of race and class. Hillary Clinton realizes that Bernie Sanders has stolen the class warfare line. Bernie Sanders has taken it, and he has, he has monopolized it. All class warfare now resides in the Bernie Sanders campaign. And Hillary was hoping to do a gender war. She was hoping to do a women versus men campaign. That's why she trotted out Madeleine Albright to say that any woman who doesn't vote for the, lady with the, the, the old lady with the vagina, any person who doesn't vote for that old lady is going to hell, any woman who, because vagina solidarity. And, and I guess that's the black power salute, but I, I'm not going to make one up for vagina solidarity. Um, and, uh, and so they say that, and so you know, she, she trots out Madeleine Albright to say that. She trots out Gloria Steinem. The, the old crone feminist who celebrates her own abortion and said a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, well, which, by the way, is one of the stupider quotes in human history. A fish, if a fish reproduced with a bicycle, a fish would need a bicycle. Right? It turns out that a woman reproduces with a man, and men have other uses besides that as well. Um, fish doesn't need a bicycle, whatever. She's an idiot. But she, but she went on national television with Bill Maher and said young women are too stupid to vote because they're voting for what the boys want which sort of undercuts her idea that women don't need men because the girls are trying to vote for Bernie Sanders to get those, those Bernie bros, those masculine, super testosterone Bernie bros who hang around with their man buns and their, and their Birkenstocks. So she tried the gender war, and it's failing. She lost by 11 points among women in New Hampshire. She lost among women in Iowa as well. No one cares that Hillary Clinton has an old vagina. No one cares. So now what is she relegated to? Now she is relegated solely and completely to the race issue, which is awkward because she's an old white lady, right? Hillary Clinton looks more like Barack Obama's normal white person grandmother than Barack Obama. Hillary Clinton has no credibility to speak on racial issues. Hillary Clinton is the, is the person who was attacking Barack Obama for most of his campaign. Hillary Clinton's husband is the one who was saying to Ted Kennedy about Barack Obama a few years ago, a few years ago, you know, he would have been serving us coffee. So Hillary has no credibility on this, and she's starting to feel the heat. So in the aftermath of what happened in New Hampshire, she gave her speech, and you can hear basically her entire speech is her just sitting there shouting at you, just screaming in the shrillest possible fashion, I love black people! Vote for me, black people, please! My entire life, my vision, I was conceived just for this moment, but I can't do it without you, black people! Just do it! Come on! We're about to, that, that's what Hillary did yesterday. And here's what it looked like. Thank you all very, very much. My goodness. I, uh, I don't know what we'd have done tonight if we'd actually won. This is a pretty exciting uh, event, and I'm very grateful to all of you. I want to begin by congratulating Senator Sanders on his victory tonight. And I want to thank each and every one of you. And I want to say, I still love New Hampshire, and I always will. And there's Bill in the background looking like Dick Van Dyke these days. Uh, and just, just standing there kind of tottering around and 
replaying, as we always say, the lesbian pornography in his mind. And, but th this is not the part that, that is really relevant. First of all, here she is. And she's got these celebratory crowds, these people who just love Hillary Clinton. None of these people care about Hillary Clinton. None of these people love Hillary Clinton. They just want to be part of the movement, the movement, the bowel movement. And so here is Hillary Clinton continuing with her please vote for me black people campaign. Here we go. It isn't right that the kids I met in Flint on Sunday were poisoned because their governor wanted to save money. It isn't right for a grandmother here in New Hampshire or anywhere else to have to choose between paying rent and buying medicine because a prescription drug company increased the price 4,000% overnight. And it isn't right that a cashier that I met here in New Hampshire's son is paid less than her son for doing the same work, even though she's been on the job for more years. Okay, so there's Hillary Clinton, and, and she ties together the war on women and the class warfare, but most of all, she starts with Flint, Michigan. So we haven't covered Flint, Michigan too much on the program. Basically, Flint, Michigan is a city. It's been a garbage heap for a long time, ever since the, the I mean, this is why Roger and Me, which was Michael Moore's first film that really put him on the map, it was about Flint, Michigan, and the fact that the Ford Motor Company had abandoned Flint, Michigan. It was General Motors. General Motors had abandoned Flint, Michigan, um, because they didn't want to pay union wages, and now Flint, Michigan was basically a garbage dump. Well, in Flint, Michigan, the local government decided they no longer they no longer wanted to get their water from a from the from their their usual place. Instead, they wanted to get it from a different place, and the different place had all sorts of contaminants and lead and all sorts of garbage in it, and. So now Hillary Clinton is saying that the Republican governor of Michigan, Rick Snyder, he's responsible for all of this. Now, there's only one problem with this, which is that he wasn't governor when this started. And there's also another problem, which is that he had no control over what the local authorities sought to do. National Review has a good editorial on this. They say Flint has relatively high levels of lead in its drinking water, a cause for legitimate concern. This is a result not so much of the source of its drinking water, the Flint River, as of the city's failure to treat the water, which, without the proper additives, leaches lead and other contaminants from pipes. Prior to and separate from the current water crisis, Flint was in a state of financial ruination. In one of the most liberal cities in the United States, Flint's Democrat-dominated government did what Democrat monopoly governments do. It spent money as quickly as it could, while at the same time carpet-bombing the tax base with inept municipal services, onerous regulations, high taxes, and the like. As a result... The bankrupt Flint entered into a state of receivership, meaning an emergency manager was appointed by state authorities and was given the power to supersede local officials. The contamination happened while Flint was under the authority of an emergency manager who was a Democrat, appointed by the Republican governor, Rick Snyder. He was, in fact, the long line, most recent in a long line, of emergency managers. So people who are, say are saying that it's Snyder's fault because he appointed the manager as opposed to it being the Democrat manager's fault. But before they appointed the Democrat manager, Flint's elected mayor and city council, all Democrats, all of them, zero Republicans, had decided to sever the city's relationship with its drinking water supplier, which at the time was the Detroit Water Authority. Flint wanted to join a regional water authority that would pipe water in from Lake Huron. That was supposed to take three years to come online. Detroit then moved to terminate the water supply immediately, so they had no water. So they decided to rely temporarily on the Flint River. The Democrats in the city government deny responsibility for this, so does Darnell Easley, who is the Democrat who serves as the emergency manager. They said this is all part of the long-term plan, but it was not part of the long-term plan. So Democratic governance of a Democratic city destroyed the finances. A Democratic emergency manager signed off on a consensus plan to use a temporary water source. 
The municipal authorities in the Democratic city responsible for treating and monitoring drinking water failed to do their job. A state agency whose employees work under the SEIU failed to do its job overseeing local authorities, and Barack Obama's EPA said nothing. It's a Republican's fault because they're black people. That's Hillary Clinton's case. So this has nothing to do with reality, naturally. It has to do with Hillary Clinton's, hey, black people, I'm an old white lady. Please give me what I've been owed for so many years routine. And she continues along these lines. Everything that she says, everything that she says is about race. All of it, except if it's about her personally. So Hillary Clinton now has two things. One, she is a victim. And two, black people vote for me, please. So here is the part where she talks about how she's a victim. She says that people have a right to be angry. Mostly she. Mostly, mostly she has a right to be angry. Here we go. Now, people, people have every right to be angry. But they're also hungry. They're hungry for solutions. What are we going to do? And that is, that is the fight we're taking to the country. What is the best way to change people's lives so we can all grow together? Who is the best change maker? And here's what I promise. I mean, she can break a dollar like nobody's business. She's the best change maker. I promise I will work harder than anyone to actually make the changes that make your lives better. In this campaign, you've heard a lot about Washington and about Wall Street. Now, Senator Sanders and I both want to get secret, unaccountable money out of politics. And let's remember, <laughs> let's remember, <laughs> Citizens United, one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in our country's history was actually a case about a right-wing attack on me and my campaign. Okay, so in other words, the a reason right she wants, we can stop it there. The reason she wants campaign finance reform is because people were mean to Hillary Clinton. By the way, when Hillary Clinton says, I want to get dark, unaccountable money out of politics, what? What? Clinton Foundation, money from every foreign government. Hillary Clinton in the Clinton administration, first Clinton administration. Donations being funneled from China into your campaign coffers. Your husband declassifying classified nuclear material. Hillary Clinton getting $700,000 from Goldman Sachs to do speeches that it reports today. The speeches were basically odes to Goldman Sachs, which is why she doesn't want to release them. She wants unaccountable, but she's the change maker gang. Not Bernie Sanders. She will bring the change. And it's, it's so much about her. It's, it's amazing how much ego drives politics. It's, it, really, it, it truly is an incredible thing. For Hillary Clinton, she likes to the, the difficulty she has in bridge, is bridging this gap. Bernie Sanders, his ego is invested in socialist change. Hillary Clinton's ego, she's actually more like Donald Trump. Her ego is more invested in Hillary Clinton must be president. That's really what she's about. All she really cares about. Which brings us to the second point of her speech, which is, please, black people, please. <laughs> so let's move on to, I think it's clip five, Hillary clip five. This is where she talks about the black people, the poor black people, and, and how she really, please, just do it. Okay. We also have to break through the barriers of bigotry. African-American parents shouldn't have to worry that their children will be harassed, humiliated, even shot because of the color of their skin. We can pause it right there. Okay, the rest of it, she goes on about immigrants and LGBT families and blah, 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 blah. But that's the part that matters, right? Black people shouldn't have to worry their kids will be harassed, humiliated, and shot because of the color of their skin. Because that's what the police are doing, you know. 
The police are going around in the black community and harassing and shooting people just because they're black. That's what they do. That's what the police do. I mean, we have 30 million black people in America, 30 million of them. So this black genocide is going really, really poorly on the, on the part of the police. But, and, and by the way, there actually is, you want to know about black kids being shot for the color of their skin, truly? It's because black gangs actually profile other black gangs. Most people who are killed in the inner cities are being killed because there are gang members and young thugs who are killing other people who they think, innocents get caught in the crossfire. They assume if you're a black person who's wearing a certain color across a certain line on a certain day, then you must be a member of an opposite gang. They actually racially profile. Black gangs do this. Read the book Ghetto Side by Jane Levy, LA Times reporter, very leftist. And she wrote this, wrote this entire book about, about what it's like in the LA gang areas and why the murder rate is so high in parts of Los Angeles, ethnic minority parts of Los Angeles. She doesn't give a damn about black people. This is, the, this is the part that's so insulting. The Democrats don't care about black people. The Democrats are perfectly willing to destroy Flint, Michigan. They're perfectly willing to feed those kids lead. They're perfectly willing to have them live in ramshackle huts and be shot by each other. They're perfectly willing to let gang members run roughshod over innocent people just so long as it gets them elected. Because please, black people, vote for me. And then she does it again. She does it again. Clip six, Hillary Clinton once again. For like the fourth or fifth time in this speech, please, black people, I need your help. But when children anywhere in our country go to bed hungry or are denied a quality education or who face abuse or abandonment, that diminishes all of us. That's why I did start my career at the Children's Defense Fund. That's why I went undercover in Alabama to expose racism in schools. That's why I worked to reform juvenile justice in South Carolina. And that is why I went to Flint, Michigan on Sunday. Black people, I've been helping you. Black people, I've been helping you your entire lives. You don't know it. You didn't feel it. You didn't notice me. But I was there. Hillary Clinton doing, the, doing this routine. And, and she continued to say this over and over and over and over again. Because again, Hillary is losing among young people. She is losing among women. She is losing among men. She is losing among white people. She is losing among people of every demographic except for rich, old, white ladies and black people. And some Hispanics. That's it. That's, that's her entire base right now. So she knows that, that Bernie Sanders has, has basically seized the initiative on the class thing. So she's decided to seize the initiative on the race thing. And that fits in with Barack Obama's program, too, because Obama is more of a race warrior than he's a class warrior. Uh, Obama is, is somebody who, if you were forced to choose between Eric Holder's vision of a racially divided America and Bernie Sanders' vision of a class divided America, Barack Obama, I mean, he talks about this in Dreams for My Father. This is a man with deep racial insecurities. He would feel the necessity to, to get behind the Eric Holder racially divided America narrative rather than the Bernie Sanders class divide narrative. All of this, by the way, does nothing, nothing at all for, for black people in the United States. Jason Riley, who's a terrific columnist for the Wall Street Journal, he has a, a, a column today about what he calls an alternative Black History Month. And he points out, he says, the irony is that black history in the first half of the 20th century is a history of tremendous progress despite overwhelming odds. During a period of legal discrimination and violent hostility to their advancement, Blacks managed to make unprecedented gains that have never been repeated. Black poverty fell from 47, to 47% from 87% between 1940 and 1960. So it was sliced in half before the implementation of great society programs that received so much credit for poverty reduction. The percentage of black white-collar workers quadrupled between 1940 and 1970 before the implementation of affirmative action policies that supposedly produced today's black middle class. In New York City, the earnings of black workers tripled 
between 1940 and 1950. Over the next decade, the city saw a 55% increase in black lawyers, a 56% increase in black doctors, and a 125% increase in the number of black teachers. Jason Riley says, you don't hear much about this black history during Black History Month because it undercuts the dominant narrative pushed by the political left and accepted uncritically by the media. Al Sharpton, the NAACP, they have no use for empirical evidence of significant black socioeconomic gains during the Jim Crow era because they have spent decades insisting that blacks cannot advance until racism has been eliminated. If racism is no longer a significant barrier to black upward mobility and doesn't explain today's racial disparities, blacks may have no use for Sharpton or the NAACP. And Riley points out the black family was more stable from between slavery and World War II than it was after the implementation of these great society programs. So black nuclear families used to be the norm. Democrats have destroyed, destroyed large swaths of the black population, their lifestyles and their ability to live happy, wealthy lives in the United States. And Hillary is begging them, please, please get behind me and, and give me more of this. Now, look, it's not really a choice between Hillary and Sanders as far as this. Sanders feels the same way. He, too, is on the racially divisive bandwagon. He's just a socialist, so he thinks that the international trumps Black Panther Beyonce songs. That's the, but in the end, they believe in the same sort of racially polarized America. And none of this is good for black people, and none of it is good for the United States. Okay, so meanwhile, meanwhile, The Daily Show is beginning to, to catch on to the fact that Hillary is, is terrible. Even they have picked up on the fact that Hillary, when she's not playing the race card, is playing the sex card. So here is The Daily Show going after Hillary Clinton uh, for, for talking so much about her, her vahoo Here we go. But, Jessica, you yeah. heard Susan Sarandon's notion that women shouldn't vote with their vaginas. I mean, Trevor, what else am I going to vote with? I literally vote with my vagina. That's right. These things aren't just made for popping out babies. They're like third hands. And I know that dudes can pee standing up, but big deal because I can pull a lever with this bad bitch. Hey. Okay. Okay. All right. You know I get it. I get it. I get it. Clearly you're annoyed. Clearly you're annoyed that people keep dragging gender into this. Yeah. Thank you for finally catching up, Trevor. Yeah. The sexism is annoying, but it's the women shaming each other that's the most upsetting. It is so diminishing for women to accuse other women of supporting Hillary only because she's a woman. I mean, I don't just worship Beyonce because we're both black. I worship her because we're both super hot and should probably get both our thighs insured. Okay, so, so you agree with the Hillary supporters? No, I don't. Both sides are being straight up booty right now. Because it's diminishing also for women to tell other women that they're obligated to vote for Hillary because, you know, we all have vaginas. We as women need to remember that we all want one thing, and it's Michelle Obama's arms. <laughs> So, seriously, we want the freedom to vote for who we want to, regardless of what our husbands or wives or friends say about it. And you know what? While I'm at it, since I'm here, no tax on tampons. How about that? Okay, so in the end, she does want to vote for her with her vagina. <laughs> if, she, in the, if she's going to vote based on the tax on tampons, there you are. But the, but the point is that even, even some of Hillary's erstwhile supporters, a black woman, is saying that she doesn't like how Hillary is playing the gender card. I, I wish that some, some members of the black community would stand up in the left black community and say, stop playing the race card. Maybe we can get along without all of that. Meanwhile, Bill Clinton dropped, I think, the most honest thing that he'd ever said the other day. Uh, Bill Clinton was, uh, was talking about how he feels bad that Hillary is constantly being attacked, and here's what Bill Clinton had to say about it. The hotter this election gets, the more I wish I were just a former president and just for a few months not the spouse of the next one. Because... <laughs> 
You know, I have to be careful what I say. Tonight, my job is to introduce Hillary. Sometimes when I'm on a stage like this, I wish we weren't married. Then I could say what I really think. Uh-huh. It's true. Sometimes he wishes that they weren't married. <laughs> like 99% of the time, <laughs> he wishes that they were. And, and he treats it like they're not. So that's always very convenient for him. So Bill Clinton spilling the beans a little bit. Okay, so a time for uh, a thing that I like, a thing that I hate, and then some mailbag. All right, so a thing that I, I like. All right, um, if you've never seen, uh, my, my, my dad and my mom, my wife, and my sisters, and I, when we get together, we like to do kind of lists of favorite types of movies. And one of the types of movies that always comes up is adventure movies, action-adventure movies. Uh, one of the action-adventure movies, it's always the usual list, right? Die Hard is on there, The Dark Knight is on there. There's a movie from the 1930s that nobody now has seen, but it, it's a classic, and it's a really, it holds up, it's a great movie. Uh, the original Adventures of Robin Hood with Olivia de Havilland and Errol Flynn, and it's in full color, it's a great movie. Have any of you guys seen it? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a great movie, it's a really, really good movie. Basil Rathbone, it, 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 just a, Basil Rathbone plays the, the Sheriff of Nottingham, and Basil Rathbone, who also played Sherlock Holmes in a lot of other movies, he was actually an almost professional swordsman. He actually took fencing lessons, and Errol Flynn barely knew how to sword fight, like really didn't know how to sword fight, and supposedly it really, really pissed Basil Rathbone off that he had to lose to Errol Flynn in these sword fights. And so like during the breaks, he would basically just humiliate Errol Flynn <laughs> while sword fighting with him. Also, another it's not an action-adventure movie, but it's, it's, it's a parody of uh, Ivanhoe, which is also a good action-adventure movie, uh, Ivanhoe and the Adventures of Robin Hood. Danny Kaye made a movie called The Court Jester, which is a, a really, really funny, clever movie. It's clean. You can watch it with the kids. It's terrific. You should go out and rent it. It's, it's, it's really funny. My, my sisters and I still do bits from the court jester. Uh, it's, it's all punny and witty. It's, it's really, it's terrific. It's, it's even better than Amy Schumer's penis jokes. So, okay, th there is a thing that I like. Now it's time for a couple of things that I hate. So if you weren't following, after the Super Bowl, Cam Newton was the, the quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. And Cam Newton, uh, he, he did not play well. He was not good. I think he was 18 for 41. Uh, and he he got lazy near the end of the game. There was a there's a fumble, and some people were accusing him of not going after the fumble. It was clear to me that he didn't care at that point. He just kind of stood around. He'd given up on the game. Uh, after the game, he was supposed to interview. He's supposed to interview. I think for five minutes is the limit. And so Cam Newton is sitting there interviewing. And here's what Cam, here's what happened. Did you change anything defensively to take away your running lanes? I know you're disappointed, not just for yourself, but your teammates, because you guys talked about how you are a band of brothers coming in. Uh, and it's I mean, got to be real that's tough that's for everybody on the game. Game. Both the box, four shots, throw the ball. You throw the football. That was, that was the game plan. Both the box, one on one man outside. Uh, they got a couple big players. But... So he gets up and he leaves a minute and 41 seconds into the interview, and he's supposed to do it for five minutes. He walks out. First of all, he's out there with the hoodie over his head, like he's going to hide from the world. And he's the quarterback of the of the team that just lost. Apparently, he was upset because the guy behind him is a guy named Josh Norman. Uh, he he apparently I think it's Josh Norman, right? Um, but he, the the guy behind him was talking about um, which some quarter cornerback who's not a keep to lead from the from the Broncos was talking about how the game plan was to shut down the running game and force Cam Newton to throw because the idea is that he's not great with his arm but he's terrific with his feet. Cam Newton gets up and he walks out. He's being defended today for this sort of rude behavior by a whole contingent of fans, and it's really irritating. ESPN, as I've said before, it drives me up a wall. The ESPN has become what ESPN is. I love sports. I enjoy watching sports. ESPN is one of the few cable channels that I actually use. 
whenever I'm working out, the TV's on ESPN. And ESPN has become MSNBC with footballs. It's become MSNBC with footballs. So, you know, yesterday they were, there were people who were critical of Cam Newton. Cam Newton came out. He said, well, you know, if you show me a poor loser, a, 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 a loser, a good loser, I'll show you a loser. Which is, yeah, and if you show me a jerk, then I'll show you a jerk. I mean, like, he, he's a jerk. So that's, but, like, Tom Brady went 19-0, and 0, right, all the way to the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Lost in the Super Bowl in a game that they should have won. He stood there and he took the questions because it's a class act. It's just part of the job. But Cam Newton is being defended by people, and you watch this conversation will turn into Cam Newton is being racially persecuted because if it had been a white guy, we just would have said, okay, even though going all the way back to Ted Williams, when Ted Williams was brusque with reporters, people thought that he was a complete jerk. Speaking of, of ESPN, by the way, there's a Rudy Giuliani yesterday was on TV, and he said that Beyonce's act at the halftime, her halftime act at the Super Bowl, was racially charged and terrible, which I have said, and which is true. And Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser, who do a show called Pardon the Interruption, which is just them jabbering at each other, and it comes right after Around the Horn, where a bunch of sports writers jabber at each other, and they talk about the same topics. Both of them agreed that the real problem here is Rudy Giuliani. Michael Wilbon sat there and said Rudy Giuliani had been racially polarizing. He knew what he was doing. He knew he was being racially polarizing. So let me get this straight. The lady who goes out on national TV does a tribute to Malcolm X, one of the great scumbags in human history, and, the, and, and then proceeds to do a tribute to the Black Panthers. That lady's not polarizing, but if you comment on it, you're polarizing. And by the way, if you don't believe that Malcolm X was truly a scumbag, read his autobiography up to the point where he converts to actual Islam. That's the part everybody always leaves out. There's the part where he converts to Islam and then is murdered, apparently, by the Nation of Islam in the United States. Okay, before that, he's talking about white devils. He's talking about white people can't even engage in the civil rights struggle. He's talking about how white people are responsible for everything that is bad that has happened to black people in the country ever, for every individual ill that, that blacks suffer. He's talking about black nationalism. Malcolm X, during the period where people actually worship him, was a bad guy, and they paid tribute to him on the field. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And ESPN defended Beyonce for, for doing that and said anyone who criticizes it is the real problem. Okay. Time for the last thing that I hate, and this one is a special just for, just for you, Lindsay. We've done this one. This one is, is very special. Okay, so Vice.com, which is truly a bizarre, lefty, crazy website, they have a, a piece called, it's by a, a woman, I guess, named Siren Kale. It's called Bloody Brilliant, the artist turning period stains into statement jewelry. Ah, yes. So can we get a picture? We'll get picture one here. So here is what they say. 22-year-old Lily Murphy Johnson creates bejeweled maxi pads and menstrual stains to celebrate your monthly bleed. So on the charm bracelet, you've got a bottle of FemFresh, a tampon and a wrapper, a tampon, a sanitary towel, and that's a box of Tampax right there. She's showing her collection of period-inspired jewelry. At just 22 years old, I mean, boy, what a triumph of the human mind she is. She's already making a name for herself in the jewelry world and is currently working under renowned luxury jeweler Sean Lean, despite only graduating from the University of the Arts London this summer. I mean, what a what just a revelation she is to the arts community that she's making jewelry based on the fact that women bleed during their menstrual cycle. What a delight she is. Oh, it's just awful. Uh, and, I mean, seriously, like, I'm, what, no one feels the need to make poop jewelry. I mean, this is just, like, things that come out of your body 
if it ain't a baby, no one wants to hear about it, right? Like, that, just as a general rule, if it ain't a baby, no one wants to hear about your bodily fluids. Nobody wants to celebrate your bodily fluids. It's true for both men and women. We don't have booger jewelry. We don't have earwax jewelry. And we shouldn't have period jewelry. I love that they're turning this into, she's a genius. At just 22 years old, what a prodigy. I graduated from Harvard Law School with two published books at age 23. Okay, calm down. Calm down. They say, Murphy Johnson's collection uses the imagery of periods to explore the idea. By the way, whenever you read an article and they say explore the idea, the idea is going to be utter and absolute crap. It's going to be the worst idea you ever heard. They always say, we're going to explore this idea together. Good ideas don't need exploration. They need exposition. Bad ideas need exploration. So they're going to explore the idea of female bodily shame and debunk the taboo around menstruation. The taboo around menstruation, I mean, I didn't realize, does the taboo affect women? I mean, like, like not in third world countries. Like, here, is there a taboo? Like, I've been to the grocery store and picked up sanitary pads for my wife. Like, this is not the end of the world. The taboo around menstruation, you mean the taboo that doesn't exist? Like, it, are women trying to hold back their menstrual cycles because they're so afraid of the taboo? I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I miss this. What this means in literal terms is spotless white panties hand-beaded with glistening red crystals and sanitary towel silver rings overlaid with ruby red studs. Yes, nothing attracts a man quite like a woman who's wearing underwear with bejeweled period stains. So these are the same people, by the way, who will celebrate abortion and period stains but think that killing a baby is something worthwhile. What, what delightful folks. I mean, how they're enriching the world. What a, what a grand world they're making for all of us. I know that my daughter is going to be so much more confident and wonderful because people buy underwear with jewels near their crotch that look like blood. Excellent. All right. So I hope that you enjoy that. Now it's time, <laughs> now it's time for a couple of letters from the vaunted Ben Shapiro Show mailbag. All right. This one comes from Matt. Letter number one. Last night I went against my better judgment, decided to debate a leftist on white privilege. Don't do this. This is a waste of time. I use your argument against it because it's not only what I believe, but it's true. The leftist posted a link to an article written by Peggy McIntosh describing 50 ways white privilege exists. I'm asking you what is a quick and easy way to prove she's wrong other than saying it's racist because I don't have time to debunk all 50. Well, this is actually a tactic of the left typically, which is instead of just arguing point by point with you, they just hit you with the phone book. Right? You say, what is show me examples of white privilege, and they can't. So instead, they just give you like the Encyclopedia Britannica, and they go, it's somewhere in there. It's not your job to debunk all of this. Again, assess the purpose of the conversation. If it's making you better at arguing, do it. If it's going to make you more informed, do it. The only way to debunk the white privilege thing is to just say, yes, it's a myth. You have no proof that there is systemic white privilege in the United States, in fact, the only laws that are currently on the books that discriminate on the basis of race do so in favor of ethnic minorities. Now, if you want to name an individual racist, I'll side with you, but you have to show me a system that is inherently racist. In fact, the only system that I actually think is inherently racist, really, the only system that I actually think is inherently racist is, uh, is the NFL. And that's because the NFL won't draft people directly out of high school. Uh, the NBA has the same rule. They force kids to go to college for a couple of years. The, the MLB doesn't have this. Because presumably, is that based on color, that the MLB will draft people out of high school because they figure you're smart enough to make a decision for yourself, but the NBA thinks that all of these kids we're drafting are too stupid to make a call, and you know, instead they have to go to Duke for two years to get a degree in phys ed, and that, that seems to me problematic. But aside from that, I have a difficult time finding systemic racism. All the talk about redlining is not true. The statistics show it. All of the talk about the government discriminating against black folks is not true. All of the idea about the justice system discriminating against black folks 
That is not true. And the fact is that there are more black people in prison because disproportionately black people commit crimes. That has nothing to do with biology. It has everything to do with cultures. So, you know, you can have that whole conversation or you can just save your time and watch Adventures of Robin Hood. Okay, Levi writes, Ben, I enjoy debating liberals and often use the tactics I see in some of your YouTube videos. At the height of the Ferguson riots, I came out and supported police and was fired by my job from my job at Nike simply for saying the only reason it made the news is because a white officer killed a black man. How am I supposed to flex my First Amendment rights when it could cost me my current or next job? Okay, Levi, you need to email me the exact post. You need to email me the letter from your employer firing you because of it, and then we are going to blow up Nike. Okay, this is how we make sure that free speech still rules. You get me all of that information, I will be happy to run a story about how Nike is discriminating against people on the basis of ideological belief, because it's inappropriate and it's wrong. Okay, Keith says, on today's podcast, you talked about the politics of opposition, saying that the Democrats get it and the Republicans don't. Can you explain and expand on that, giving examples, talking about Republican mistakes in the context of that? Sure, the politics of opposition is the principle that, they're, that you're running against somebody else. Republicans seem to assume that they're running for hearts and minds. No, you're running against someone else in order to win hearts and minds. Okay, Democrats understand when they campaign, Hillary Clinton, we just showed tape of her, she's running against the evil Republicans who poison black kids in Flint. She's running against the evil Republicans who hurt LGBT people. She's running against the evil Donald Trump who hurts immigrants. She's running against all of those evil employers. She's running against the police. It's all in opposition. She identifies enemies, and then she attacks them. And people who share those enemies say, ah, the enemy of my enemy must be my friend. I'll vote for her. Republicans, however, don't do this. They don't say that Democrats are the enemies. They say Democrats are just misguided. They say that Democrats are just poorly informed. Now, Marco Rubio got a lot of crap over his debate last Saturday night. And that debate last Saturday night, he got a lot of crap over because he said several times the same thing. But the thing that he actually said was true, which was Barack Obama intends to make the country a worse place. That's actually a really important point. He's right. There are Republicans on that stage, Chris Christie, Jeb Bush, John Kasich. They don't believe that. They actually think that Obama wants to make the country wonderful. He's just really bad at it. He's just incompetent. No, Barack Obama is your opposition. As your opposition, he is badly motivated. Now, it happens to be true in this case, but all successful politics is based on attacking the motivations of others. This is what Democrats do so well. I try to do this only when it's obvious what the motivation is. I try to attack the tactics. I try to attack the, the motivations only when necessary. But politics of opposition is all about you have to attack the other guy. You can't just attack his policies by saying his policies are ineffective. Andrew writes, Ben, I was listening to your latest podcast when you said my wife had a sonogram a few days ago. Does this mean you and your wife are expecting? If it does, congratulations to you and yours. Yes, it does. It means that my wife is expecting. We are expecting a baby boy in late May. With the help of God, everything should be healthy. The help of God. And, uh, and we're very excited about it. And then Andrew says that he found a comment on the Daily Wire site about the podcast. And here's the comment. And he wants me to respond to it. Okay, so after listening to Ben Shapiro for several months, this is what I take away. First of all, I'm always happy when leftists listen to me for several months because that means that I'm entertaining. Also, it means that in all likelihood, they probably agree with something. People don't tend to, agree, to listen to things they disagree with all the time. He wants to protect unborn children while slashing social services for born children and low-income families and individuals. The only children he really seems to care about are his own. He wants to make abortion illegal for an 18-year-old girl who got pregnant while working a minimum wage job, the only one she can get. I, I like when they make up mythical stories like this. It's always fun but doesn't want to increase minimum wage to make it actually livable to support a child. He doesn't care about homeless people, like at all. He is very rich and proud of it. 
He is not into charity. He even said this once on air. He is only using abortion to demonize Democrats and does not sincerely care about the issue. He would be far more unhappy if he had to give up a cut of his paycheck to provide for those millions of new babies being born into poverty every year, which is what would happen if abortion was made illegal. Okay, so we can almost go through this sentence by sentence. The goal, the, the abortion and what happens after the baby is born, these are two separate things. So we'll talk about them separately. Don't kill babies, you jackasses. Okay, end of story. I care about the babies being born. I care about people being killed. This is the equivalent of your argument is, I want people not to be murdered on the street. I also don't think I should have to pay for their health care. Right? It doesn't mean that I'm pro-murder because I don't want to pay for your health care. Your health care is your job. And guess what? When you have a kid, that's your job. That's your job. And I promise you, no check I can sign to you. If you don't want to take care of your kid properly, if you're unable to take care of your kid properly, no matter what check I sign to you, that consistent stream of checks is not going to make that child's life better. What is going to make that child's life better is you not being a crappy parent. I take this very seriously. I have a daughter. I'm about to have a son. The only thing in life, really, truly, the only thing in life that I truly, deeply care about more than anything else is how I raise my children. I'm willing to sacrifice every bone in my body, every drop of my blood, and every dollar in my bank account for my kids. They're my kids. You should feel that way about your kids. And I'm not willing to sacrifice my kid for your kid. I'm not willing to take dollars and money and labor out of my kid's pocket to give to your kid. That's your job. That's your job. If you're going to be a parent, be a damn parent. It's not my job to parent your kid. You want me to parent your kid? I'm going to adopt your kid and give your kid a good life. But I'm not going to pay for you to do a crappy job parenting your kid. And as far as the idea that I have to sign a check to you so you can parent your kid, no, you know how much it actually costs to raise a kid in a country where you have free public education, in a country where you have food stamp programs? Hey, the reality is, if you want to raise a child properly in this country, hold down a job and get married. That's it. Okay, and then have some values when you raise your children. But this is a, it's, a, it's a frequent trick Democrats like to play. It's, oh, well, you, you, must, you oppose abortion. You should then pay for my kids. No, I don't think you should kill your kids. And also, I don't think I should have to pay for your kids. Your kids are your kids. Again, the logic is just bizarre here. Now, I oppose slavery. And so people say, well, if you oppose slavery, what are you going to do with all those freed slaves? Presumably, you're going to have to put them on welfare. No, I don't think you should be able to hold slaves. I think that's evil. I think that people should also be able to find jobs, and I think people should provide them jobs. These two things are unrelated. The birth of the child, once the kid is born, that kid is your responsibility. And in society's, by the way, actually, society's responsibility carries over. You're not allowed to kill the kid before. You're not allowed to kill the kid after, okay? So we're consistent. The government should always prevent murder. End of story, okay? What that has to do with me paying, again, if I pay for all of the things you want for your kid, then you're not doing your job as a parent. And we've generated a society where the government parents kids and the government is doing an unbelievably crappy job of it. As far as increasing minimum wage, okay, increasing minimum wage, legislating that somebody pays a higher minimum wage does not actually help children because let's say that there's not one 18-year-old mother who wants to work for minimum wage. Let's say there are three or four, which is more likely. They're all working at the same store. If I raise the minimum wage, I have to fire two of them. So which kids did you just help? Maybe you helped two of those kids, but two of them are now poor again. So well done, minimum wage idiots who don't understand economics. Finally, they say, well, I'm very, I, don't like home, I don't care about homeless people at all. No, I do care about homeless people. You don't care about homeless people because you want to leave mentally ill people on the street to suffer, get sick, and die. Okay, you want to justify drug use so that people can be sucked into the great maw of evil that is drug addiction. That's what you want to do. 
I care about the homeless because I think that mentally ill people should be taken care of. In fact, I've even come out, this is the one area where I've actually come out in favor of bigger, more powerful governments. I've come out in favor of more local funding for mental institutions, for example. But I don't think homeless people have the right to sleep on the street any more than I think a child has the right to sleep on the street. It's not because I'm mean to the kitty who wants to sleep on the street. It's because kids who sleep on the street end up dead. And homeless people who sleep on the street also end up dead. As far as I'm very rich and proud of it, yes. Yes, I am. And finally, and you know why I'm proud of it? Honestly, because I work my ass off. I mean, that's why I'm proud of it. Because wealth is just a substitute. It's just a substitute for labor. Because I worked hard to get where I am. And you can work hard too, and you can get here. I truly believe that. I grew up, I don't, again, I've said this many times on the program, I don't like talking about the rags to riches stories because I don't think that poverty is virtue. I don't think that just because my parents, when I grew up, we were middle, middle class, that just because I grew up in a bedroom that I shared with three younger sisters in a house that was 1,100 square feet and there were six people, <coughs> excuse me, sharing one bathroom, I don't think that makes me more virtuous. But this is a country with incredible income mobility. I quit a job when I got out of law school where I was making a lot of money. I took one-third the pay, and then I worked my way all the way back up and passed where I was when I got out of law school by a multiple. Income mobility is available here. I'm very proud of how much I earn, not because money is a, is a recognition of virtue, but because money is a recognition that I'm giving people something that they want, and in exchange, people are giving money for that thing. I'm doing more for people than somebody who is earning less, and the reason for that, not an objective scale, not, I mean, not on some subjective scale. On an objective scale, people are willing to pay me more money to do something than they're willing to pay other people for doing that thing. Okay, there's just more of a market for it. Does that mean that LeBron James does more for the world than a doctor? Not on any moral level, of course, but it means there are a lot more people who are willing to pay to watch LeBron James than are willing to pay a surgeon from Harvard. I don't see any of these people saying LeBron James should have his salary taken away from him. Again, voluntary exchange is a good thing, and I provide something, and... Everybody does. This is why capitalism is good. And he says that I'm only using abortion to demonize Democrats. I, believe me, I don't have to demonize Democrats on abortion. You demonize yourself when you say that you're able to plunge scissors into the skull of a fully grown baby one minute before it's born and suck its brain into a sink. I actually don't have to demonize you. You pretty much do that on your own. All right. How many, do, how many more letters should we do? Like one? Let's do one more. Yeah, I know everybody's like one. Let's get out of here. Okay. So one more. All right. Let's see. Okay. Ben, you seem to be highly productive, always up on current events, producing regular podcasts, in addition to reading a variety of books, comics, watching movies, as well as writing books, as well as articles. How do you do it all? Do you have a large staff? Do you get eight hours of sleep? Do you work out? This person is asking a lot of very specific questions. How many hours do you read on the average day? Are you a speed reader? How do you balance it with your personal life? Okay, so here's what my schedule looks like on a daily basis. So I wake up at 5.30 a.m., I get up, I quickly peruse the news on my phone, get up, drive in to do the morning show that I do on KRLA 870 out here uh, with a couple other folks. During that show, during the breaks, I assign pieces for the Daily Wire, I do the schedule for the, after, for, for the, the podcast, and I write a couple of pieces during the breaks. Uh, I am a very fast reader, I'm also a very fast writer. Uh, I then come in here and I prepare for a little bit more for the show. I do my morning service, the, I do my davening. Uh, which is the Jewish morning service, phylacteries, talus, the whole thing. Uh, and then after that, we sit down and we do the show, which takes twice the normal amount of length it should. Uh, then finally, when we're done doing the show, I go back to writing. I write a couple of more pieces, usually for the Daily Wire, and one for Breitbart. Uh, and I make sure that everybody is up on their assignments over at the Daily Wire. Uh, I try to work out every day. Uh, I work out with a personal trainer every day. The reason I do that is because 
uh, as someone who values money, as someone who takes money seriously, uh, the reason that I value the, – the reason that I actually work out is because I know I'm going to be paying – I'm going to be signing a check no matter what to the personnel trainer once I set a time. So I may as well not waste the money. I may as well go in. So it becomes a, a higher priority for me if there's something at stake other than just do I work out today. Uh, then I try to you know, I try to kind of limit my day to about 5 p.m. is when the nanny gets off. My wife is in medical school, uh, and she's finishing up in a couple of months. So I usually take over from the nanny like 4.30, 5 p.m., uh, and then I take care of the baby until the baby goes to sleep at about 8 o'clock, uh, and, uh, and then I do my reading and relaxing and all of that. Um, yeah, I do, I'm not a speed reader, but I do read very quickly. I tend to, do, I, I tend to read three to four books a week. Uh, I read you know, everything on the Internet, uh, and, um, and, and I watch movies at night. So that's, that's kind of, and, I, and I do get a decent amount of sleep. My wife never lets me get to sleep before 11 o'clock, and I'm up at 5.30, but uh, if, if I had my way, I would go to sleep at, at 10.30 and wake up at 5.30. One last, last point, and that is going back to that comment. Somebody said that I don't like charity. Right, I said this on the program. The reason that I don't like charity is because I actually use my money to hire people. Like I have a bunch of people who work for me and people who I pay, ranging from my nanny to the personal trainer to, this, to the assistant. There, there are a bunch of people that I pay. Money that I give to charity doesn't actually help the economy as a general rule, and, it's, and I would rather provide money for services than money for no services. All charity is, in my religious view, and I'm supposed to give more charity, and I've said this. I have a hard time with this commandment, and I need to do better on it, so I'm at least honest enough to admit this. Okay, the fact is that the reason for charity is the commandment is to give charity, not to receive charity. The commandment is to remind you that the money isn't actually yours. So I said I'm very proud that I earn a lot of money, but the money still isn't mine. All of the gifts that I have, all of the skills that I use, all of my health, my wealth, all of that is a gift from God. Charity is a reminder that every ounce of my effort, yeah, I put in heavy effort, and yeah, I take pride in that effort, but in the end, none of that really belongs to me, and none of it really matters. What really matters is my relationship with God, and it's a reminder that the things that we value the most are really not even ours. They really belong to God. This is why my daughter's name is Leah, because Leah in Hebrew means I belong to God, because this is, this is actually a big thing for me. I believe that we all, in the end, belong to God, and it's our purpose to serve his mission. So with that said, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Uh, I, unfortunately, will be spending my weekend watching yet another Republican debate, which is just horrifying in every imaginable respect. But I hope that you have a wonderful weekend, and hopefully the Republic will still be here on Monday. We'll see you then. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Did you know that mRNA vaccines are approved for use in pigs in the United States? Not to mention 85% of the beef sold in your local grocery store is imported. In fact, over 5 billion pounds of meat was imported just last year. There's so much mystery surrounding our meat, which is why I'm so grateful for my Good Rancher subscription. I know that I don't have to worry about imported meat or unknown vaccines in the food that I feed my family. Good Ranchers is saying mRNO to mRNA by offering a free 10-pound Easter ham with any subscription. Unlike the pork from the grocery store, Good Ranchers ham is guaranteed 100% free from mRNA vaccines. This is a $119 value, absolutely free with code DAILYWIRE. Go to GoodRanchers.com and say mRNO to mRNA by subscribing today. You have a right to know exactly what's in your food, and Good Ranchers is dedicated to protecting that right and providing your family with the best meat in America, free from any unknown and potentially harmful additives. Go to GoodRanchers.com and subscribe to any of their boxes and use code DAILYWIRE at checkout. Every subscription will come with a free Heritage Ham, $25 off, and Good Ranchers' lifetime quality commitment. That's GoodRanchers.com, code DAILYWIRE.